The one whom angels revere Hung the stars like chandeliers Numbered every grain of sand Knows the heart of every man He is King forever He is King forever He is King forevermore Amen Amen Thank you Lord Thank you Lord Oh, thanks for letting me share a couple songs. Wonderful. All right. So now, the thing you all fear when the worship leader gets away from the instrument. <laughs> We're going to move. So you saw a little bit about 10,000 Fathers. You've heard a little bit about my thankfulness for your church. Um, what we just sang about, there's a line in it that we hit right there at the end. Um, Numbered every grain of sand, knows the heart of every man. That's a little bit of where we're going to actually jump in tonight with what I feel is a little bit of a word for you guys that I hope will encourage you as you continue on into this new year. Um, but before we jump into that, let me show you a couple of pictures. This was just a few years ago. It was February 12, 2014. Oh, no, but that's my family. So I am here representing not only 10,000 Fathers as a community, but my, my wife, Megan, and our four sons, Cooper, Judah, Niall, and Lennon. So they're 17 down to 10, and we, uh, we have a lot of fun in our house. We are on a subscription basis with the emergency room. Um, we just figured that was cheaper than doing these uh, one-offs all the time. Uh, my 10-year-old got a cast off yesterday from a broken arm, so that's good. Everything's looking good. Um, so no one has broken bones or stitches right now, which, yeah, hey, <laughs> yeah, so, okay, so let me, you, you see my family, let me show you a picture of the National Corvette Museum. This opened a few years ago in Bowling Green, Kentucky. This was a huge tribute to the triumph of American muscle cars. Any Corvette fans in the room? All right, 500 horsepower, you know that if you know these cars. Um, 1953, they started right. February 12th. 2014. Well, first, let me show you. Yeah, so this is an artist rendering. Here's the grand opening. They have all these incredible, uh, like invaluable, like priceless um, Corvettes in this gallery. And so everyone's walking around checking these things out. February 12, 2014, alarms start going off in the middle of the night. When they show up to see what has happened, I want you to see pictures a sinkhole opened up underneath this brand new gallery, 60 feet long, 40 feet across, and 30 feet deep. They pulled these cars out with these cranes, and you know some of these were priceless. There was the millionth Corvette ever manufactured. There was uh, 1993 01 Spider that was worth over a million dollars. And I want you to see, I mean, look at this. This is so sad. <laughs> Sinkhole opens up. I want you to see the quote um, from one of the GM global product developers. Um, here's what he said. As the cars were recovered, it became clear restoration would be impractical because so little was left to repair. Nothing to fix. It's just too broken. What happens when what's under your foundation gives way? You know, we, we, we talk about spiritual practices, and they're obviously so valuable. We have to have them. We need a foundation of discipline and delight and desire, all this good stuff. But what's under the foundation? What's under the practices? What's going on underneath there? Because a foundation on sand is not going to last. Jesus actually talked about that at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. Foundations rest on something. And so one thought to kind of lead us into this conversation tonight, and I do hope that it's a conversation, is this. If there's cracks on the surface, you might have a crisis at the core. Okay, cracks on the surface, 
you might have a Christ at the core. And you can go and paint over the surface. Like if you've ever bought an old house and you looked and saw these spider webs of cracks in the paint, right, going up the walls, like you can just keep painting over it if you want. But if your foundation is off, it's a matter of time until that thing is going to need to be rebuilt. A crack on the surface can indicate a crisis at the core. And actually what we're going to be thinking about and praying into a little bit tonight is what's going on under your foundation? What's going on in the ground of your being? Who do you believe that you really are? He's, he's numbered every grain of sand and he knows the heart of every man and every woman. What do you believe God thinks about you underneath the discipline, underneath the foundation, in the ground of who you are, what do you actually think about who you are? And, you know, it's, it's amazing because only humans need to have this conversation. Like my little puppy, uh, Simon Cowell, he has no problem being a labradoodle to the glory of God, you know? Um, no problem. Tulips, electrons, and these flowers, they have no problem being exactly what they are to the glory of God. But only humans get so caught up in trying to be something that we're not or getting confused about who we really should be and it's only hard for us to be authentic in the truest sense of a word. Just being can be difficult, and fully authentic being can be extremely hard to find. And the irony is we don't find our truest self by looking for it. We find our truest self by looking to Jesus. And it's amazing because Jesus, you know, he did talk a lot about self-sacrifice, but he also talked a lot about self-awareness, self-knowledge, self Care, self-discovery. Think about this. You notice the speck in your brother's eye, but you aren't self-aware enough to notice the log in your own. Self-awareness. You wash the outside of the cup, thinking that's going to clean the dish. You have to wash the inside. That's Matthew 23. You have to be paying attention to what's going on inside of you. Lose your life to find true life. What good is it to gain the whole world? Lose your soul. Luke 9. Pay attention to what's going on in your soul. It sounds like Moses in Deuteronomy 4 verse 9 where he says, Above all else, give heed to your soul and watch over it diligently. Do you know what's going on inside of you? Another way I think that Jesus could just say all the stuff that we've tried to say so far with that picture is this. It doesn't matter how much polish is on the floor if there's a crisis at the core. But a lot of times we just keep polishing the surface, neglecting the crisis, and then we wonder why everything goes wrong and the bottom drops out. It happens all, and it happens all the time. Now, a lot that's going on within us is unknown to us, obviously. And the thing is, it can be painfully obvious to others, right? Isn't it so easy to see what's going on in your spouse, right? I mean, just not for me, I would never judge, you know, but it's so easy for me to notice what's going on in my wife and be oblivious to what's going on in myself. So easy to see what's going on in others. And I can be very aware of your problems and very unaware of my problems. And I've noticed in my own tendency in history to, anytime I'm really picking a lot of fights with other people, it's probably because I'm ignoring a fight I need to fight inwardly and internally. Like I need to settle some stuff in here. But there are important things going on in our hearts and our souls that we need to pay attention to we refuse to pay attention to that stuff because sometimes it's not all happy. We might feel ashamed of who we are. We might feel guilty about something that we've done, and we don't want to think about that stuff. Let's get, just keep buffing the floor, you know, and try to ignore what's going on down there. But the problem is unwanted parts of ourselves don't go away. They just go into hiding. And guys, time doesn't heal wounds. Only Jesus heals wounds. Time isn't necessarily going to heal this. This is why we really need one another and we need community to mirror for us our blind spots. Because it's really, I don't know if you've noticed this, it's really hard to kick your own butt. You can try. I hope you stretch first. But sometimes you know that that's what you need. You need someone to say, that is not who you are. I know that God's called you to something and you are settling for a lesser version 
We need community. Think about even um, if, we're, if we're thinking about identity and like how we perceive ourselves. Only in the last couple hundred years of human history have there been mirrors, right? Like a thousand years ago, you wouldn't even know what you look like unless you saw like a really still pond. You like you would figure out kind of you know how to perceive yourself according to how people treat you. Now. That's all obviously skewing a little bit as everything's kind of becoming more and more selfied, right? So we think we know exactly what's going on with us all the time. But no, we need community to speak into us what, what people see in us. But more, even more foundationally than that, we need Jesus to speak into us what he sees in us and what he always has seen in us. We need that desperately. Now, we can do this fearlessly because we remember that God's love for us has nothing to do with our performance. He just, he just loves us, okay? He's totally good. And so we don't have to be afraid of finding something down there that's going to surprise God. He's probably sitting in the rubble waiting for us to show up and waiting to get to healing. But divine love is absolutely unconditional, unlimited, and unimaginably extravagant. So we don't need to ignore what's going on down there or hide away from it. I think Pete Cesaro said it great. He said, when, when you ignore what's going on inside of you, you become very dangerous to everyone around you. When you ignore what's going on, why do you keep manifesting that pattern? Why do you constantly have to dominate the conversation? Why do you have to work 80 hours a week, 52 weeks a year? Like These things are coming from a source. And if we don't pay attention to that, a gap can start opening up between who people think that we are and who we know that we are. And in anyone, that's dangerous. In spiritual leaders, like this room, that's disastrous. We need Jesus to shine his light and show us any offensive way, any wicked way. Jesus, shine. Holy Spirit, speak. So how do we end up this way? Like, why can every single one of us go, yeah, I can kind of connect to that. Yes, yes, yes. Well, we all kind of grow into it. So there's not a lot of teenagers in the room, I've noticed, but I have two teenagers, almost three, uh, in my house. And, you know, as a, as a father of teenagers, uh, one of my heroes said, it's important when you have teenagers in your house to have a dog. So someone's happy to see you when you walk in the door, you know? And so, <laughs> so I've got these teenagers. And and what, you, what I've seen happen with, so my 17 and 16-year-old, what I've seen is out of 16 and 17 years, I've seen about 16 or 17 different kind of identities that they've tried on to fit in, right? So, and it's interesting when I'll, well, I'll ask him, so how's your friend doing? How's this guy? What's going on with him? Oh, well, he's a gamer now. Yeah, he's a gamer. <laughs> oh, yeah, well, that guy, he's a jock. Yeah, that's what he is, you know. Oh, those are the skaters, and I see the kid, and you see this with adolescents. They like try on identities like outfits, right? Oh, yeah. And, and it makes sense. We're just trying to fit in, trying to belong, just like Glenn just said. We want to feel like we are at home with people who aren't just welcoming to us, but, but affirm that we belong with them. That was so awesome. So it's amazing to see this happening before my very eyes with my kids, because Adolescents, especially like kids, try to create a sense of self rather than receive the gift of self, right? But your true self is never a creation. It's a discovery. It's a gift. And it's a gift from God. So real quick, just 30 seconds, with someone at your table, maybe as a table, can you think back to when you were an adolescent? How did you get your identity? What was it? Were you the cheerleader? Were you the valedictorian? What, what were you? The musician? The cool artist? You know, what was it? Real quick, with your table, let me hear a couple of maybe embarrassing ones. So we can recognize, aren't you glad? How many of you, just by showing of hands, are glad that you've kind of gotten out of that phase? Okay, good. Yeah, yeah. So... How many of you feel like maybe someone at your table is still in that phase and needs to get out of that phase? Okay. <laughs> All right. Uh, if you've ever seen Napoleon Dynamite, Uncle Rico is one of my favorite characters ever. 
he still wants to be the high school quarterback. You know, it's like his identity. You know, I could throw a football a mile, you know. It's so funny, so oblivious to what is so obvious. Now, look, when, when our kids, when our kids were younger, when they were like um, seven, eight, nine, one of the things they were really into was costumes. They just always wanted to wear costumes. They want, they've got like their Buzz Lightyear costumes and they've got their, you know, Bob the Builder costumes. That was, I guess, a little earlier. And so it's so cute at any given point. You know, it used to just be like costume parties or, you know, fall festival kind of things. Like you could come out, we can say Halloween? Okay, I never know. <laughs> at, the, at the fall festival? <laughs> At the fall festival. And so it used to, at first, you know, if you came around in late October, you might see our kids in costumes. Then they just decided, we're just going to wear costumes all the time. And so we have a closet in our kids' bedroom that's just for costumes. Now, costumes are cute on kids. <laughs> you know what's not cute? Seeing a 30-year-old guy who's still wearing something to try to be something that we all know he's not. He just doesn't know that he's not. And it's really confusing sometimes. Like we, we confuse our aspirations with who we want to be with our actualization of who we have become. We get mixed up there sometimes. I think we all do. And I've got to be honest, I think social media is making this trickier and trickier. You know? Because you're seeing someone else's highlight reel and you're living your blooper reel. And so this comparison thing can start to sink in and we don't feel like we're enough and it doesn't take very long to be way far away from believing about yourself what God believes about you. It doesn't take long at all. It's amazing, you know, the first king of Israel, Saul, like, he had the anointing of God. He was actually chosen by God. He had everything except, except knowing what God thought about him. And you know what it says in 1 Samuel 15, 17? Saul grew little in his own eyes. Little in his own eyes. It's so crazy. He's the king over Israel. He's the king over God's chosen people who are going to bless the whole world. And you know what he thought of himself? Not enough. His feelings of inferiority destroyed his kingship. Why would you be little in your own eyes when you're the apple of God's eye? That's Deuteronomy 32.10. So if you know what God thinks about you, it can color what you think about you. And integrity and probably wholeness is getting those two to be the exact same thing. And so as we're thinking about this conversation tonight, we're thinking about true self and identity and belovedness. Think about Psalm 139. You have formed me and known me. I am fearfully and wonderfully made. How many teenage girls need to look in the mirror and go, I am fearfully and wonderfully made? Would that not change so much? It absolutely would. What about Isaiah, 40, Isaiah 43, 43, when he says, when you pass through the fire, you'll not be burned. When you go through the water, you're not going to be overcome because I'm the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel. And then he says this, I have called you by name, you are mine. I have called you by name, you are mine. Now that makes sense. You only get to name what is yours. I don't get to name Glenn's kids. You with me? Brian doesn't get to name my dog. His name is Simon Cowell. And that's final answer, Regis. And so you only get to name what is yours. And when God gives us a name, he's reminding us he didn't just acquit us. He adopted us. Yes. We're not just pardoned. We're purchased. Yes. You with me? Like we are not just forgiven. We have been brought into family. I've called you by name. You are mine. In Jeremiah 1, the way that Jeremiah sees his identity. Verse 5, he says, before I was born, I was appointed. Before I was even a baby. I have been given a word for you. And that's the book of Jeremiah. The way that he sees his life is God wanted a word spoken through me. And so he made me. What if God wanted more glory in Colorado Springs? So he made you. What if you looked at your life and said, God wanted X in Colorado Springs. And so he made me. That's how Jeremiah sees his identity. 
goes, I was born before, I was appointed before I was born. I was known before I even existed, and I was given a word. That's how he sees himself. So, so life isn't about creating a special name for yourself, as much as our phones might tell us otherwise. It's about discovering the name that we've always had. Discovering what Jesus has seen us from the very beginning. And so how many people in the Bible are their name changes? Over and over and over. Abraham becomes Abraham. Sarai becomes Sarah. You could probably go on and on and on and on. Gideon, right? He's weak. He's the lowest. He's the worst. And he's hiding. And the angel of the Lord says, mighty man of valor. Gideon's like, huh? Me? Do you see how much is on the line if Gideon doesn't start thinking of himself rightly? It's not just his life that's affected. It's the whole nation's liberty that's in the balance if this one guy doesn't get what God actually says. This is crazy, guys. And so what we're talking about isn't some sort of navel-gazing, introspective, self-absorbing thing. No, no, no. This could be an unlocking kingdom force in this city if just one of you grabbed hold of what Jesus actually saw you as and started living out of that. It's really that big a deal. It's why there's so many name changes in the Bible. And there's other name changes that don't stick. Think about Solomon. 2 Samuel 12, verse 24, Solomon's name becomes Jedidiah. Jedidiah means dearly beloved. I don't think that name stuck. Do you look at Solomon and see all of his philandering and 300 wives and all these thousands? Do you, do you see someone who believes themselves to be dearly beloved? Or someone looking everywhere for a taste of love? It happens over and over. God changes their name. And so we see even with Solomon, it's not about pretending we have a new name. It's about practicing living out of it. We don't pretend. We practice. Even Mary, the mother of Jesus, Gabriel comes and says, Greetings, highly favored one. What a name. Highly. It's like a naming ceremony. Simon becomes Peter. Impulse control case, Simon, becomes the rock of Peter, foundational to the future of the church. So much hinges on, do we get this right? Even in that story in Matthew 16, where Jesus changes Simon's name, remember what he says, Jesus is asking identity questions. He goes, who do people say that I am? Well, some say that you're John the Baptist or Elijah or, or Jeremiah. Jeremiah, that's interesting, the weeping prophet. And Simon Peter goes, but... But you're the Christ. Jesus goes, who do you say that I am? You're the Christ, son of the most high God. Jesus says, you're blessed. Why? Flesh and blood didn't reveal this to you. But the Father revealed this to you. Why is that a big deal? Here's why. Because flesh and blood will lie to you. But he heard the Father, and he spoke the truth and in declaring who Jesus was, he discovered who he was. Yeah. This is where worship and, and gathering becomes so powerful as we fix our eyes on Jesus and just declare, you're the sovereign one. You're the king who reigns forever. You're, it's your name, not ours. As we declare who Jesus is, we position ourselves to receive who we are. That only he gets to say because he has bought us. and We belong to him. Even Jesus listened to what the Father said about him. 30 years he's been building tables, houses. He's a tecton, a builder, a carpenter. And then he's baptized. Heaven opens. A voice speaks to Jesus. And what does it say? You are my beloved son. I'm proud of you. Jesus hears that, and guess what happens right after Jesus is baptized? The Spirit, Luke says, sends him into the wilderness for 40 days. He's tempted. We know about three temptations. Hebrews says he's tempted in every way. So there were more than three over Jesus' life, but we know about these three. Now, out of three temptations, where the enemy comes after Jesus, guess what tactic he uses on two of them? If you are what? 
if you are the son of God, turn these stones into bread. What's the temptation? What's the Ten Commandments? It's like, thou shalt not turn stones to bread. I can't remember that one. Like, where is the sin? You know, what's the temptation? Maybe using his power for himself. Maybe it's just forsaking his identity. The father has just said in the river, you are my son. And don't you know that the enemy will always question in the desert what the father has spoken in the river? He always questions in the desert what the father has spoken in the river. So you might, and this happened probably the day after you got saved. The day you come into the kingdom, Holy Spirit fills you, it's wonderful. And the next day the enemy is right there. That wasn't real. You're making up that prayer language. It's all in your head. It's not going to last. The enemy is just right there. I mean, directly going after what the father said. You're my son, if you are the son. And see, the father is so kind to speak to us what we desperately need to hear before we are going to be tested to really hold on to it. Because it's not just here that Jesus hears this. He's going to, of course, overcome the enemy in the wilderness personally. On the cross, he's going to overcome the enemy permanently. But before the cross, guess what? Jesus is not going to go into the wilderness. He's going to go up onto a mountain. Guess what's going to happen? Heaven opens again. The Father's going to say something again. Guess what he says? You are my son. Why does Jesus need to be reminded of that? Because do you know what's about to happen to Jesus? He's about to be arrested, beaten, crowned with thorns, crucified. And guess what they're going to keep saying to him? If you are the son of God, come down from that cross. Jesus is hanging on to his identity with every dying breath. Even though all the evidence pointed to the contrary. See how much is at stake? If Jesus forsakes that he is God's son, no matter what's happening to him physically, do you see how the whole universe tilts? But Jesus overcomes, not just personally, but permanently on the cross and changes history. Amazing. Jesus would tell us a, a prodigal son parable. You remember the story. It's about a father with these two sons, and they have different stories of who they are. One of the sons has a story that I'm not good enough to be your, to be your son. The other has a story, I'm so good. I must be the perfect son. The father has a different story for each of them. Neither of them are living out of the father's story, right? And so we end up, no matter what's even true, we live out of these stories that aren't true, and then we begin manifesting all the stuff that comes with that untruth. When Jesus says the truth will set you free, that means lies bind you. Truth can't set you free from an iron prison. You're going to need a key for that. If truth can set you free, then lies have bound you and the lies have to be broken off the way they're broken off is by hearing the truth. Because if you think you're unworthy, you'll act out of that. And psychology is proving it. What you believe about yourself, you'll begin to manifest. So Jesus listens to his identity. In John 10, when Jesus is talking, he says, I'm the good shepherd. Open the gate to the sheep. And then it says this in verse 3. The good shepherd calls his sheep by name, we've talked about that, and then leads them out. Interesting, calls his sheep by name and leads them out. So calls his sheep by name, identity, leads them out, destiny. He calls them by name, tells them who they are, and then leads them out, tells them where to go. So many believers that I meet are asking the destiny questions without getting the identity thing answered first. And so they're just going from job to job, relationship to relationship, spouse to spouse, trying to figure out this destiny thing without hearing the identity thing. Good. If you don't get what God calls you, you're not going to know what he calls you to do. Because just like everything that Glenn talked about this Sunday, everything that God does comes out of who he is. That's how it's supposed to be for us too. So he calls his sheep by name and leads them out. We were in uh, Lebanon, or 
Jordan, I can't remember, in the desert, maybe in between the two countries, a few years ago, hanging out with these Bedouin shepherds, trying to share Jesus and share the kingdom um, with these Muslims that we just love. And so as we would break out into our different groups and go into the camps, uh, we'd go find, Bedouins are tough to do ministry with because they're always moving, you know? (laughs) Um, And so we would come back at night and tell stories around the fire about what God did. And one night, my friend Gary, uh, a mission worker over in the UK, he's from the UK, he lives over in the Middle East now. He said, you're not going to believe what we saw. He goes, we were talking to this Bedouin farmer and he had all of these sheep, um, you know, out in the desert. I don't even know how these sheep survive. They're like chewing on dirt and rocks. Um, and he said, he asked the, the farmer, the shepherd, how many sheep do you have? And the guy's like, 134. He's like, wow, you know exactly how many sheep you have. And he goes, well, they all have names. And he goes, what? The shepherd gives this name, and this one sheep sticks his head up. (laughs) He comes over and stands in front of the shepherd. He gives a command, it goes back. Gives another name, another sheep. Head comes up, walks over in front of it. And then the shepherd goes, do you want to see two of them fight? And they're like, yeah. And so he calls two sheep, and he gives a command, and they begin ramming their horns together. We can't help it. We read this and think, oh, that's nice rhetoric, Jesus. You call your sheep by name, lead them out. Oh, that's so sweet. Everything hinges on our ability to recognize, discern, and live out of what God has called us and be in line with what God's called us to do. And good luck living into what God's called you to do if you don't even know what God calls you. Again, flesh and blood will lie to you. We don't mean to, but we get it wrong sometimes. And we need to hear what God calls us, because if we don't know what God's called us to be, we'll become whatever people will pay us to be. It reminds me of Jacob. I mean, Jacob's identity was basically not Esau, right? (laughs) I mean, Jacob learns that if you can't get what you want by being who you are, maybe you can get what you want by pretending to be who you're not. But like Glenn said at the very beginning of this, If you're pretending to be something that you're not, you might be welcome, but you'll never feel like you belong. Because you're not even being real with yourself. Jesus is reality. God meets us in reality. I think it's probably so hard for God to work with our fantasy. How does he do that? And some of us might need to, tonight... Ask the Holy Spirit to show us what are the lies that I believed about myself. And some of this probably started really early in life. You know, we're so impressionable early on. A teacher can just say the, the most benign thing, but you take it and interpret it. And maybe the enemy gets in there and twists it. And all of a sudden, I mean, my wife, she's brilliant. She's godly. She's powerful, authoritative. I wish she were here right now. She could talk give this talk better than I could. But somewhere along the way, I think she was about third or fourth grade, her best friend got into the gifted program. She didn't. And so guess what lie she believed for about 30 years until Jesus set her free? You're stupid. You're stupid. In worship, leader, in worship school, we have worship leaders from around the world who come. These are great leaders. They lead in churches like this. They lead in smaller churches, bigger churches, all kinds of churches. And when we sit with them and ask, what do you actually believe about yourself? Beautiful women will say, I'm ugly. Lovely men and women will go, I'll never be loved. Incredibly gifted musicians will go, I'm no good. And it actually starts to become infuriating to see how ridiculous the lies are that the enemy gets people to believe. He's so good at deception, he makes us think we're not even deceived. But God calls us by name, and when God calls you by name, he's not giving you a new name. He's giving you your true name. It's who you always have been in his eyes and who you always will be. We have to talk about a couple things first before we get into our exercise. Because we're talking about identity, we have to also talk about stolen identity. Because one out of seven people today in our country uh, has somebody else using their identity 
or their social security number or a credit card. How many of you have had to change your credit card because somebody else went on a shopping spree with your identity? Yeah, all right, so it looks like the stats are about right. One out of seven people. Last year alone, it cost businesses and individuals $50 billion in the United States. Stolen identity. Now, why would you steal someone else's identity? It's because you don't have what you need to get what you want, but they do, and if you can use their identity, then you can get what you want using their identity. Make sense? And so why would Satan want to steal your identity? Because Satan has no anointing. He has no authority. He has no power. He has been completely stripped of all authority, disarmed. Principalities, powers, they've got nothing. So, so if Satan can just get you to think, eh, I'm not going to really live out of my identity. I'm not good enough to do that then he's able to twist the anointing of God, the gifts of God. Again, God's the source of all of this stuff. Satan's not the source of anointing, source of talent, the source of gifting. Satan has nothing to give. But if he can deceive and steal your identity, then he can use all of that anointing and gifting from God for his purposes, not for the kingdom of God. So stolen identity is, is rampant. Because isn't it just mind-boggling to you that Jesus, who has all authority in heaven and earth and has commissioned his church to go into the world and preach and teach and cast out demons and heal the sick and raise the dead and spread the kingdom, Satan's getting more done in the world, it looks like, with no authority than the church is getting done with all authority. All he's done, twist our identity, steal the gift and get us thinking, I could never live up for that. And you know what? The truth is, when you hear the lie from Satan, it actually is easier to believe in the truth of God. Like, it's easier to believe, yeah, I'm really not good enough. Yeah, I don't know, I'm not. I can actually probably give you exhibits A, B, and C to prove that what Satan said about me is exactly true. And so when I asked, when I began to pray through some of the stuff that we'll do in just a minute, I said, God, what are the lies that I believe about who I am? And he said that you're an unworthy son. It's exactly what I always felt. I grew up in fundamentalism. I grew up in a pastor's home, Christian school, not good enough. I remember I was probably like kindergarten, walking, you know, with my class, like holding onto the rope, going to the bathroom. I must have let go of the rope at some point, And the teacher goes, shame on you, Aaron Keys. I, I was like, I got plenty of shame on me. You don't need to put any more shame on me. I grew up in church, all right? I got shame. You should be taking it off of me. Not putting it on to me. She didn't mean to put anything on me. But when I pray, I say, what lies do I believe? Where did the start? When that memory comes up. A soccer coach when I'm ninth grade who calls me bird legs, being too skinny. I remember that, like that made a mark on me that I'll still, I could still be a little soap. Maybe I won't wear shorts. I wear really long shorts, you know. I mean, this stuff, it still rattles around. Littlest things can just get, get in there. And why is that a big deal? So, so not only can the enemy twist uh, our gifting away from their purpose, they can also just strip us of the authority that the identity of God puts upon us. So here's what I mean. Like, uh, one of my friends got a doctorate from Harvard. If he were here, I wouldn't bring him up and say, guys, meet my friend Tyler. He graduated from high school. Give it up for Tyler. No. He's got a master's degree. No. I'm going to brag to you about my friend Tyler, who got a doctorate from Harvard. Why? Because within that, there's a certain level of respect and honor that comes with that truth. Now, did he graduate from high school? Yeah, he actually did. <laughs> Does he have a master's? Yeah. So I'm not lying about who he is. I'm just not telling you the full truth of who he is yet. If the enemy can get you, not just thinking some crazy thought about who you are, but just get you thinking a little bit less, actually, about who you actually are. 
He can get you living out of that lesser authority than what Jesus actually has given you to live out of. So if all you think that you are is a member of New Life downtown, that's all the authority that you live out of. That's not enough authority. Colorado Springs needs people who have more authority on their life than just, oh, I help volunteer at the church. No, no, no. You are so much more than a member of New Life Downtown. And let's zoom out from, from that. You are so much more than a sinner saved by grace. Can we just stop that lie? All I am is a sinner saved by grace. All I am, blah, 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 blah. No, no, no. The enemy will just keep hitting you with this stuff because if he keeps hitting with it, you'll eventually believe it. It's the principle behind advertising. It's why Coca-Cola will spend $5 million for a 30-second commercial. If we just keep hitting you with it, eventually you'll believe it. It happened with Israel. They're camped out over here. The Philistines are camped out over there. 40 days and nights, it says, a giant comes out and taunts them. His name's Goliath. And guess what he says? Every day and night. You are the armies of Saul. I'm going to lick up your bones. He's taunting them. He's intimidating them. And Saul and his army are terrified. They've heard it for 40 days. That's how long it takes for your brain to develop neural pathways, some say. You start to actually believe something. And so David, he hadn't heard that lie. He wasn't in the army. He's not on the battlefield. He's a shepherd who was sent to like bring some snacks to his older brothers who were in the army. And so David gets there. And I don't know how long he'd been there, but he's hanging out with his brothers. And then here it comes, the daily routine, morning and night. First time David heard it, though. Saul comes out and does his normal, I'm sorry, Saul. Goliath comes out and does his normal thing. You're the armies of Saul. I'm going to wipe you out. David goes, how dare you defy the armies of the living God? See, if you think you're the armies of Saul, you're going to be terrified by that guy. And Saul is asking, who are we? Look at him. David's asking, who is he? Look at God. Changes everything. Who do you think you are? A sinner saved by grace? A member of new life? Or a living child of promise? Dead to the power of sin. Free from all condemnation. You are a joint heir with Christ Jesus. That far supersedes anything that Glenn and his doctorate from Durham can give you. More, it's more, it's more than that. You are a partaker in the divine nature. You're redeemed. You are justified, righteous. The devil has no hold on you. You have eternal life now, not just one day. You are a citizen of heaven. You are a child of promise. You, are, you have the very mind of Christ. You're the light of the world. You're the head, not the tail. You can do all things through Christ who gives you strength. You're blessed with every spiritual blessing. You are part of a royal priesthood, a communion of saints. You carry the glory of God in your body. Stop saying you're just a sinner saved by grace. Your authority is so much more than you think. But you've got to live out of the identity that Jesus actually gives you, not the one that you've manufactured for yourself. If we don't want to become a source, getting thinner and thinner and thinner, that's going to, the bottom's going to drop out at some point but we want to become a source that's getting stronger and truer where we believe about ourselves the same thing that Jesus says about us. We're going to have to pay attention to what's going on deep down. Okay, I'm trying to slash for time. Let's do this. Let's see. So we're going to do a quick exercise. And here's the exercise. We're going to ask the Lord to speak to us even now first about are there lies I believe about myself. Then we're going to renounce that. We're going to reject that and ask the Lord, what's the truth I need to believe about myself? What do you call me? I told you, the enemy had, made, had me believing for about 30 years that I was an unworthy son. Do you know how heartbroken I would be if my kids got to the age of 35 and said, Dad, we just always thought we weren't good enough for you. That would break my heart. But that's exactly how I felt. Unworthy son? 
That's exactly how I felt. And I said, God, what do you say that I am? And he said, a worthy father. And that changed, the future, that changed my whole future. I started having kids young. I mean, by, by 23, we had two kids. By 30, we had four. I felt like ill-equipped to do this whole thing. I'm not good enough to do this. What do I know? And do, do you see how big of a deal it is that I know that God has called me to be a worthy father? And not to live under some curse of being an unworthy son? It's a lot easier to live into a blessing than under a curse. We've got to live into the truth of what God says for us. And, and we're going to do this prayer exercise. But listen, even if you've heard this a million times, you know exactly what God calls you. Have you ever noticed the people that you're closest to, you have the most nicknames for? So I've got names for my wife that nobody else has for her. I've got names for my kids that nobody else calls them. For my closest friends, I, I kind of can't help. Austin, I call Tex. His name is Texie to me. In my phone, it's Texy, you know. I don't know why. It just started somewhere. Like, you just can't help but name that which you love. The Father has names for you that he probably haven't heard yet. But even if you had, listen, this isn't like a one and done thing. Like, I got it. Now I'm good. You're going to have to hang on to the truth of what Jesus calls you in a culture that's going to keep blowing you downstream and trying to pull you away from it. It's just personally. Two years ago, maybe one year ago, uh, my friend Brenton Brown, great worship leader, songwriter, he's, I look up to this guy, I think he's amazing. He wrote, you are the everlasting God, you know that song? He wrote a lot of great songs, you probably know a lot of his songs. Um, I love Brenton, we've become good friends, but he was in town for uh, a few days in Atlanta and he texts me and says, hey, are you around? Let's get dinner. And so Megan and I go down, we have dinner with Brenton and Jude and it's so fun. And, and I, over the course of the dinner I go, how long are you in town? He's like, oh, I've been here for a week. I was like, oh, cool, what are you doing? He's like, I've been songwriting. I'm like, who are you writing with? And he names like all of my friends. And I'm like. <laughs> and on the drive home, my wife goes, did that just tick you off? <laughs> and I actually thought about it. In that moment, hurt my feelings. And I had to remember, what does Jesus call me? Big time writer? Quick networker? Leverager? Worship superstar? None of it. All that he's called me to be is a worthy father. And so, does it still hurt? Hurt my feelings. Did it ruin my relationship with Britain? Not at all. Does it make me jealous of all these people who are my friends who got to write Britain? Not at all. I can just release that stuff and hang on to what have you called me to be and release what you haven't. So good. It changes everything. And I'm telling you, this is, this is me at 38, having tried to live out of what God's called me for about a decade, I still get tempted to get threatened or insecure or jealous or feel inadequate. It still happens to me too. It probably happens to you too. So we, if we know though what Jesus has called us to be, we can just keep going back to that. And like you put your hands on the horns of the altar and hang on to that thing, even if everything else is falling apart, that might fall apart. I know what you've called me, and this isn't going to fall apart. Revelation 3, Jesus says to the one who overcomes, I'm going to give a white stone. You read this? And on that white stone, you know what it's going to have? A name that no one else knows except him, and then finally, you're going to have it. One day, we're finally going to see us exactly how he sees us. If we're supposed to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, then the better that we can hear and live out of the truth of what he calls us to be and then where he calls us to go, the closer we are to bringing the fullness of the kingdom everywhere that we are. So, let's put these steps up on the screen. We're, I know that we're almost done. But step one, here's what we're going to do as a prayer exercise. Can we believe that God is good and has good plans for us? Okay, we believe that about God. Number two, 
Can we believe that God calls us by name? Jesus said it, Jeremiah, Isaiah, Psalms, it's all over the place. God calls us by name, three. Ask God. We're going to give you five minutes right now. We'll leave that on the screen. We'll leave it up there. Five minutes. We're going to just play some peaceful music. And I want you, don't chat with anyone just yet. Number three, ask the Father, are there any lies that I believe about who I am? Number four, we're going to ask him, what do you call me? Again, it can be a lot easier to believe the lie than to believe the truth. It takes no faith to believe the enemy. It takes great faith to believe Jesus. So don't be surprised if you begin coming up with a litany of lies. But can you get out of this night with one truth that Jesus calls you? Take five minutes be at peace, listen for the Lord, and then I'll end us with a benediction. Satan doesn't want you to hear what the Father says to you. He doesn't want you to live out of that. You become very powerful when you live out of that. But I pray like Paul, here's a benediction for us. For this reason I kneel before the Father. <laughs> from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being, in the ground of your being, that you would be strengthened with power from Jesus to know who you are, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, would have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, peace be with you guys. Amen.